Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Brother Anthony. 
Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony, and following Brother Anthony, we now we're bringing Brother Haki, and we'd like to also welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, <clears throat> thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and you know, of course my thing is all about institution building, and why institutions are so important, so critical to the African community. Uh, for many, many reasons. But recently I read a book uh, dealing with the question in terms of popularism and fascism. There's a book entitled um, The Meritocratic Trap by Markowitz. He talks about popularism and its relationship to to meritocratism. Uh, Popularism is best understood in in the slogan, Make America Great Again. And the perception being, in America, people rise or fall based upon their abilities. This view is, <clears throat> reflects a meritocratic form of government free of class, racial, and gender bias. The reality is America's policies have always benefited and supported the capitalist class at the expense of all others, including the middle class. The kind of attempt by the white capitalists directed at the citizenry has not only been directed solely to Africans, but has been directed against poor white folks as well. In Markovitz's book, he points out the capitalist disdain and hatred for working-class poor white people, and he, he provides this quote. Political correctness does not denounce calling rural white communities backwards, southern rednecks, Appalachian white trash, flower of a country. The National Review, a very famous magazine, called white working-class communities negative assets, morally indefensible individuals, enthralled in, enthralled in vicious, selfish culture whose main products are misery, and use heroin needles, including they deserve to die. The New York Times observed immigrants outperforming native-born whites in meritocratic competition, called them the stagnant pool in which national prospects risk drowning and further argued deportation of native-born American whites is the only solution to save America, end quote. Now, they mentioned nothing about in terms of the inequities of the system. They talk about poor white folks as to be an epitome in terms of scum of the earth. So it's very, very interesting in terms of this analogy, particularly when you think about you know, the kind of characterization of African people in society. So clearly the system is off the, is, is off the hook uh, with respect to being indicted. Now, here's the thing. Obviously the notion that making America great again will improve the living conditions of poor white people chooses to ignore the historical reality of being poor in America. However, the role of disparity Blocked opportunities around class are slowly being realized, but the issue of race continues to lag. In a recent poll, white Americans were asked, is America giving you what you deserve? 50% of the respondents said no. When asked, is America giving black Americans what they deserve, 12% of Americans or white Americans said yes. The, the, excuse me, the ironic response indicates a perception which suggests poor whites historically benefited from capitalist policy and that Africans are beneficiaries of capitalist policies. And this is a perception among many white Americans that makes the bloody end results of fascism possible. If the leak is so easy to manipulate white people, it is easy to understand why so many feel that the path to making America great again is achievable, even if that means liberating those ethnic groups that stand in the way of America greatness. 
even if that greatness isn't an exaggeration. Needless to say, uh, we have to have institutions come back this way of thinking. Um, you know, some serious understanding in terms of the social political conditions are a must. In fact, it's a prerequisite in terms of moving forward for our people in this society. Because without those tools, we stagnate. And if we stagnate, the question in terms of our survivability becomes a, becomes a question. So we have to have institutions in terms of moving forward, and I encourage people to build those institutions. And I want to thank you for having me, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Aki, for your continued participation and contribution to Africa on the Move. And today I'm going to go to and welcome Brother Jabari to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Jabari. Thank you, Brother Jay, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program. Appreciate the honor and privilege to appear. Peace, everybody. Father Jabari, we have Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Moses. Greetings. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Let me thank you for your participation, Brother Moses. And Father Brother Moses, we have Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Hotel brothers and hotel to the listeners out there in the world. Uh, my name is Brother Maurice. I'm a Krumus, an ideology based on the teachings of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, first president of Ghana. Um, and also I'm a member of the Pan, PRSP, Pan-African Revo- Revolutionary Socialist Party. Our main ad- objective is also to develop a united uh, a United socialist states of Africa and African people and destroy capitalism, also imperialism, also neocolonialism. Thank you for having me on here tonight. Thank you for being here, Brother Maurice. So listen to what it is you listen to Africa on the Move, which is a program dedicated to speaking truth to power and to providing you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's right, to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. We invite you to call in today on the 12th of July as we discuss the theme Part 3, Planning and Controlling by Force. You can call in at 323-679-0841. And we'd like to hear your views and your comments. But right now, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we're going to start off with the segment of what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. You listen to the voice of Africa on the move, Brother Africa. We're going to pause to this cause. I 
But if you come from Clarendon, and if you come from Portland, and if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African. So don't you where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, have got the identity of an African. controlling by force that I would like to share with everybody. Uh, Starting off with uh, Iran, Uh, there was a Ukrainian uh, 
airliner that was uh that was um uh uh attacked inadvertently by the Iranian military in which there were about 127 uh, casualties i think uh, uh some number like that and among those were about uh, uh 60 canadian uh citizens and uh citizens of several other countries and uh this was pre- uh precipitated by uh the US assassination of uh uh the Iranian uh, military official um and uh th- so uh uh US intervention historically has been a for a force of destabilization in that region of Asia uh for decades and it has uh caused uh um uh millions of lives lost as a result of uh US intervention and uh and the forces of Zionism as well. Uh another example I want to share is uh concerns a movie that was released recently called Just Mercy, which is about uh, this uh, African lawyer uh, who uh, who relocated to Alabama to start a legal clinic to help impoverished uh, inmates, um, you know, re- uh, receive a fair trial who were railroaded onto death row because of uh, racism and also their inability to afford adequate legal representation. And also due to uh, a blatant disregard of the human rights of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the defendants that were, that were charged with uh, capital uh, crimes, uh, such as, uh, you, you know, murder and other offenses. Uh, and those are, and again, uh, you know, railroading people onto death row is another means of uh, controlling and definitely, uh, you, uh, you know, controlling by force, you know, uh, you know, forcibly exterminate and denying them the right to live to their fullest human potential. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, you know, speaking of control, one of the things, Brother Africa, if we're talking about fascism as it exists in America, then we understand that control plays a very big part in terms of how how, how government operates. In fact, I recently read an article about uh, Amazon, and uh, this, this particular article talked about the fact that a young lady uh, made a statement to the media talking about Amazon could do more in terms of tackling the climate crisis. Well, she was called into the office. She was investigated by Amazon. And uh, even though they didn't fire her, they told her, listen, in the future, you make no, no statements at all about Amazon. Uh, any statements that you make must be approved, pre-approved by Amazon. So it got me to thinking. Uh, it seems to me that one of the things that we have to begin to understand in terms of fascism is that when you talk about, in, in, inevitably, when you talk about fascism, you're talking about it, essentially what happens is that the, the corporations replace government. So in that context, context, when you talk about, uh, you know, constitutional uh, constitutional protection, there is none because corporations run the ball game. And as a consequence, when you talk about the constitutional right in terms of freedom of expression, there are none 
because the corporations say that you only speak when we tell you to speak, and you, we'll tell you precisely what to speak. And so, therefore, that is one of the um, telltale signs in terms of fascism. I think that's what people have to be very, very, very clear on. And, in fact, the reasons why, you know, we know we're in a fascist state is because one of the things, when you think about the incarceration of Amir Abu-Jamal, he's there simply because what? Because of his writings. Not that he did anything, simply because of his writings. Uh, it's the same reason why mainstream media only promotes propaganda. Why is it that we can't get both sides of an argument? Why are we privy to only the propaganda? Well, that's a reason for that. Why is political speech under threat? Well, under fascism, it has to be because control is a very, very important feature in terms of fascism. So I'm hoping at this point in time that people who don't get fascism will begin to at least begin to put together, you know, some of the, the facets, some of the pieces in terms of fascism and why, you know, uh, it was such a very um, precarious situation um, as, far, as far as history is concerned when we think about fascism in America. So I'm hoping that people begin to put two, two plus two together and understand that this fascism is very, very real. Thank you, Brother Akif. Brother Akif, we now bring Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world and the community? You know, recently I had a chance to read an article entitled, Walmart Wants to Build 20,000-Square-Foot Automated Warehouse with Fleets of Robot Grocery Pickers. So essentially, to summarize the article, what Walmart is working on is working on this Alphabot project. In regards to the Alphabot project, that would be a situation where robots would gather up the orders that people who use Walmart's grocery store pickup um, option. Now, robots would gather the items, and then human people would pick them. And they said that these robot humans would um, package the items. And they said that these robots would be able to package 800 products per hour. Now, if we talk about the expansion of automation, we've got to understand this is antithetical to um, human progression because anytime you're doing this, that means there's going to be a large number of the hu- human society that's going to lose their jobs because the machines will do the work and they won't need the labor. Now, it's in- very interesting. They always say that we're supposed to be coming up with opportunities to create more jobs, but yet they're trying to find ways every way possible to create condition where we need less human workers. So we got to understand that when a lot of these people say that, oh, we're going to increase minimum wage, all of that is talk because if they increase minimum wage and they don't have the human workers, that means it's going to somebody else's pocket to increase what they take home. So we have to be aware of the a very dangerous game that's at play in terms of how they um trying to remove human workers. That's an excellent point, Brother Jabari. Excellent point. Next time, Jabari, we're going to bring in our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, I should mention this crisis that we went through briefly uh, with the president knocking off a general and a, and a sovereign government and raising the issue of war. Meanwhile, the Iranians managed to shoot down a plane showing that we definitely don't need nuclear weapons around if these kind of mistakes are being made. And it's been an interesting week. Uh, uh, I I think, you know, there's going to be some rallies this weekend, no war on Iraq in around all around the country, but in D.C. too. And it should be at the White House at 1 p.m., I believe, Saturday. 
All right, thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father Brother Moses, we bring in Brother Maurice. Brother Maurice, what's going on in your world and the community? Uh, recently, I read an article um, about uh, um, retired quarterback. Uh, well, I, I want to say retired quarterback, but he, you know, Colin Kaepernick, activist and quarterback. Recently, he was out. He came out and, and spoke up, uh, spoke up against and, and criticized American imperialism. Um, and, and this is in response to the assassination of Soleimani in Iran. Um, basically, he stated there is nothing new about American terrorist attacks against black and brown people for the expansion of American imperialism. Um, he also said America has always sanctioned and besieged black and brown bodies, both at home and abroad. And and basically, in response to this, you had a um, you had a, a a White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, and he attacked the NFL and and reached out to Nike and said, "Do you so, do you all support this guy?" And 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 say that he uh, he also said Soleimani is responsible for deaths of hundreds of Americans, but they don't they always say that the um, foreign uh, the, the 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 foreign power that they invade and the land they are invading um, they 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 responsible for deaths of a hundred Americans. They got they got to put it in context. They, America is responsible for the deaths of people on their land, so they never put put it in context. Um, but you know I, when I seen this article. I, I smile. I, um, I'm like, wow! I knew Kaepernick was, uh, you know, active and outspoken. But when he called out imperialism, he, I, I believe he took a big step um, to calling it what it is. Thank you. All right, thank you, brother Maurice. What's going on in your world and the community? If you have any views, comments, you're welcome to call in three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. We're going to take another quick commercial when we come back, break, and when we come back, I'd like each one of y'all to shine in on this particular issue in question. Looking at one of America's major sports institutions, the National Football League, and how they are addressing and dealing with this question of lack of African coaches. We're going to dissect that issue when we come back on this break, and I'd like to have y'all to weigh in on out of the 32 coaches in the NFL, why is it today we only have so-called three African-American coaches? Out of all the openings they have for this year, they did not interview over two to three African coaches at best. But not only that, coaches are being given coaching job in the NFL who never coached before, most of them never played a game before. Most of them, you know, have no real criteria of coaching, but yet when it comes to Africans who have played the game, who know the game, who have coached the game, they continue to say that um, you are not entitled to these positions, given the fact that 75% of all the football players are Africans. Let's talk about that phenomenon when we come back. We're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about why is the NFL anti-African coaching. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. 
Africa on the moon. That's right. We were stolen from Africa and brought to America, fighting upon our arrival and still fighting for our survival. So we want to let them know that we will not forget this crime against humanity. You got to listen to Africa on the move. We can come speak truth to power. And we want you to come and join us by dialing in at 323-679-0841. Panelists, as we continue to discuss the segment, what's going on in your world and the community, there has been some recent issues in sport media inside of the U.S. where there's a talk, a continuation of talks for years on this question of looking at this institution that they call the National Football League that is comprised of 75% of Africans. But yet they have 32 jobs of coaching and you only have three African coaching. You have coaching, you have athletes who have played the game, you have athletes who have been former coach, you have athletes, in other words, have putting their dues and highly qualified. But for the last five or six coaching jobs that have been opened this year, only one or two Africans were interviewed, but no one was selected. This time it seemed like the playing field had changed again for us, which means it's not about your qualification, but about your collect your complexion and your connection. To the panelists, when we look at the NFL, why is it that we don't have more than three African coaching coaches today in the NFL. What's up with that? And give us your analysis, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things, you know, there's a long history, a long legacy in terms of uh, certain perceptions when it comes come to African people. To give you an example, outside of sporting, in the sporting world, uh, there was the, the current uh, Secretary of Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, was with Goldman, Goldman Sachs. He was in competition with the African uh, fellow uh, to get the job uh, for a partner uh, at uh, Goldman Sachs. Well, the African, this brother was, uh, not only did he have a master's of business administration degree, he had an MBA, but he also had a degree in chemical engineering. So this brother was extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent, overly qualified in terms of the partnership at Goldman Sachs. Well, needless to say, he didn't get the job. Steve Mnuchin got the job by virtue of the fact that his father worked there and the fact that he was white. So, therefore, you know, this question in terms of meritocracy, in terms of people, you know, moving up based upon their, their abilities or their achievements, doesn't always exist. And that's particularly true to the NFL. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, there is a perception that if, if Africans are fine as players. But when it comes to those capacities, we have to think. Uh, these managers or these owners of these teams less likely to hire African people. But to some extent, Brother Africa, I think you have to blame the players because you, first and foremost, you, you're in those organizations and you see the stuff going on, but you don't move to organize, you know, to put an end to this kind of practice. So I think some of the responsibility has to be on the, uh, on the players themselves. But clearly uh, this notion in terms of, you know, that uh, African people simply don't have it, I'm not surprised that you don't have any coaches, you know, uh, being even considered. And you have these people who, in fact, who are not even qualified to be coaches, who are making huge sums of money being coaches at the NFL who never even played the game before. So clearly I think the onus is to the large extent is on the players in terms of putting into that kind of practice because anything short of pressure is not going to deter the owners from um, engaging in that kind of practice. 
Brother Zabari, what's your take on this phenomenon? I was recently um, reading an article of a similar vein um, in regards to when Richard Sherman was asked about the same situation. And Richard Sherman brought up a good point, which I want to share some light on in terms of when you look at the um, structure of the NFL, because the power players look a certain way, those who are the power players are going to hire coaches that look like them. It doesn't come to a matter of, of um, what your credentials are, but it's a matter of who they feel most comfortable around, who they'll find most trustworthy, and who they decide to pay. Because one thing we got to look at why the NFL is in the way that it's um, in the shape that it's in today is that when you look at the background of the commissioner, the um, figurehead head honcho of the NFL, Roger Goodell has no previous NFL playing experience. He got his key executive job as a result of him being an intern that um, the former NFL commissioner, Paul Tagliabue, um, felt very highly about. And in regards to the interview, the person that should have, would have been most in line was um, Eugene Upshaw, who was not only a standout NFL player, but he had been an NFL executive for a number of years, but he was passed by for the position because of what he looked like and because of, in regards to Goodell, the owners would be comfortable because it would be business as usual in terms of we're going to run this thing the way that we want to run it because we don't necessarily feel comfortable with those people that even will ha- offer any kind of possibility to even challenge us on any kind of level, given the number of things that we do wrong. Because the one thing you have to understand about the NFL is that it's okay to call out what players may do wrong, but when it comes to those executives or those owners who um, engage in less than um, respectful behaviors, nothing wants to be said about it. Brother Maurice, what's your take on this phenomenon? Uh, I, um, I, I'm not surprised because if you look at the NFL, the NFL is a corporation, and a lot of pe- a lot of owners of football stadiums, like for example, Ford Stadium. Let's let's look at Henry Ford. Where did he get his uh, wealth from? He got his wealth from um, Liberia in Africa, along with Firestone, um, and Procter and Gamble, and all, along with Coca-Cola, who who uh, was exploiting uh, Ghana. And MLK, Martin Luther uh, King Jr., asked, he didn't ask, he, he, he demanded to the people in Memphis to uh, boycott and go on strike against the Coca-Cola plant in Memphis. So NFL is a corporation, and uh, I, w- I would say that. And also, uh, when you look at Stephen A. Smith, I give him a pat on the back. When he, he, he That's good he's talking about. He's, uh, that's the most outspoken that I've seen of him. But on a on a bigger scale, the bigger question is: um, I understand that we uh, it is uh, exploitive when you when they don't hire hire black uh, coaches. But if, if we even if we did hire black coaches, what about the masses of African and black people who suffer? You know, it's a class question. We need a class collision to take place, and he need to understand. We need all of he need, he definitely need to understand that we we thinking oh. Black visibility is going to, you know, solve our solve our um, issues, our main issues. The only thing black visibility is going to do is assemble. It, it, it gives some sense of joy, like watching football when your team winning. My football team, what you know, about, you know, I'm guilty of of of, of um, watching football and liking football. My football team is the Minnesota Vikings, who 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 made me like the team was Dennis Green when he was a, a coach, um, black coach, and he had two black. Uh, quarterbacks, first string and second string, black running, black black rivals. He was damn that the whole team <laughs> was African, Africans uh, except for the ownership. 
but and that's why I, I like the team because as a kid you had that that visibility. But I would say we need to go farther than just having that visibility. The bigger question is is the class question, you know, for for the masses of people. You know, uh, brother Anthony, many people would say that the owners fall on the owners. If it's gonna change, if the owners will really have to find a say. Now, understanding the capitalist system, and if you talk about those who own and control the wealth, should be given the right to make decisions based upon their wealth. Do you ever think this issue of not only coaches but African executives, et cetera, et cetera will change? Not until you fundamentally change the, the essence of the whole idea that people who have money should not be given uh, so much leeway where they can discriminate and do as they please based upon their wealth? I agree, Brother Africa, but that would not change until uh, all the workers in the NFL and uh, football players on down get sufficiently organized to force a change. Uh, because uh, the owners, uh, the, uh, the, the owners control the arenas. They control the media contracts, which bring in uh, the, the NFL's revenue. And until the players and uh, and, and all and all the other support and other support staff in the NFL get sufficiently organized and demand a change, then then it's not going to come. Uh, because at the end of the day, the owners still rack in millions of dollars every every week uh, from these games, and uh, and it's not so much the owners that have the power; it's actually uh, the fan base, which is predominantly European, and uh, you know, and 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 largely petty bourgeois. And uh, the and as long and as long as a competitive product is put out on the field every week, they uh, it, it'll be business as usual until uh, until the change comes within the organization, and that is and this is another example of why it's important that our people get organized. Right now, the NFL players and. Uh, and the support staff, your trainers and coaches, et cetera, they probably lack an independent organization. And that is why they cannot, uh, uh, you know, exert, you know, any demands upon the NFL to change. You know, Brother Africa, there, there, is, a, there is an irony. Uh, you know, I listened to our Brother Jabari speak about the, the propensity to hire white folks because they're more comfortable with them. But, you know, you know, the irony is that it seems to me that what they're motivated by most is the pursuit of profit. And so, therefore, if you have someone of color who understands the players, someone who can motivate the players, it means it translates into the possibility of winning more games, which means more money. So it seems to me that if their profit is their, their, their motive in terms of, you know, the, you know, running those organizations, then whoever can make it possible for them to prosper should be should get those positions. The mere fact that despite the the, the, the the possibilities of, you know, winning seasons with African coaches making lots and lots of money, they opt for the comfort level. So it seems to me that what's driving these, these owners is not so much uh, the comfort factor as it is, has, has more to do with uh, the question in terms of race. 
I think a certain a certain idea, certain precepts that they have in their mind in terms of what what their expectation when it comes to African people. So I think by and large that is a big motivator in terms of what they're doing. Also, I think we can't discount the fact that also when we talk about these positions like head coach in the front office, we're talking about not only money, but we're talking about status. And the problem is that, you know, when we talk about money specifically, money uh, in, in, a, in a capitalist society uh, alludes to status. And I think it's, there's a presumption, you know, that a certain kind of status shouldn't be afforded African people. And so I think as long as this kind of thinking exists, I think there's really, it's really a real impediment in terms of actually hiring, you know, African coaches and Africans in the front office simply because, you know, um, in, my, in, 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 in these managers' in these owners' minds, these people simply don't deserve the right to receive that kind of status. So I think, I think so we have a historical problem in terms of, you know, how African people are perceived in the society. And I agree with, with Anthony. I think that anything short of mass organization among the athletes is not going to, is not going to uh, uh, bring about any real tangible results. But I definitely disagree that the, that the fans have any say-so in terms of, you know, uh, the functioning of those, of those organizations. Those people in the stands could care less about in terms of, you know, what the manager is doing. What they want, they want, they want to win. And that for them, that is that is probably the the biggest motivation in terms of their attendance. And so, therefore, as long as you got winning teams on the field, they could care less in terms of their office politics. But I think that by and large, it's definitely going to take the the, the players. You know, they have to stop being afraid. You know, at some point, you got to stand up and be a man or be a woman. You know, you just got to take a stand and say, listen. You know, some things are worth fighting for. And until we get to that point of view and start stop thinking that, well, if I stand up and take a stand, they're going to blacklist me or they blackball me or they're going to do this or do that. As long as we continue to think like that, then we continue to acquiesce, you know, and to our own powerlessness when, in fact, we have the power. So 75% of the players are African. And so, therefore, they say, listen, listen, you know what? You got some damn good coaches out here. These players know these coaches who can motivate our team. Why won't you pick him? Why did you pick this guy here who doesn't have any experience, who knows nothing about the game, who knows nothing about the psychological aspect of the game, who knows nothing about the physical uh, um, impediments that players have to endure in terms of playing this game? How could you pick somebody like that, you know, when you got someone who's seasoned, someone who understands intimately the aspects of all aspects of the game? But players have to step up and do that. They have to have organization, and that's, that's key. So until that happens, the players, the management, or the owners of those teams are going to do what they always done. That is, you know, to 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 simply bypass this issue in terms of you know um, giving uh, African people a fair shot in terms of those coaching jobs in the front office. Brother Moses, what you make of all of this? This this, this the narrative of not even considering African coaches to coach in the NFL. What is your, what is what is your take on this this phenomenon? I think we have a situation where, you know, this institutionalized racism, which is what we've experienced throughout history, it seems. Uh, uh, anyway, we experienced it in the U.S. with this NFL thing. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a, has to be a, some kind of a system to getting coaches and, uh, and getting the experiences, coaches, applications, et cetera, and actual consideration of them. But right now, there's no, there's no consideration uh, uh, that I can see, and 
And so the prejudice and the biases and the bigotry continues and uh, until someone <laughs> breaks down the, the 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 bias and the prejudice, it will continue. And, uh, so we need coaches, and uh, hopefully it will be, you know, they'll start the three that are there will will shine so that they'll they'll definitely want more. Thank you. Okay, Can I ask something? Uh, yes, go ahead, Anthony. Yeah, I'm going to ask something that, in addition to the points made earlier, I want to add that there that 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 there's a perception, probably not 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 only in the NFL but in other occupations, that Africans do not have the intelligence to be in leadership roles, and I think that's a part of the problem too. And why you don't see, uh, you know, more Africans in front office or head coaching positions, even though they make up seventy five percent of the labor force, there that there, there is a perception, primarily among ownership for the most part, that Africans cannot uh, can, cannot cannot play leadership roles, and I seem to remember a few decades back. There was a controversy because the, uh, the, there were there were hardly any Africans allowed to play quarterback until uh, people such as uh, Doug Williams and others sat, shattered that uh, that that concept that 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 Africans could not you know could not play uh, you know a leadership role on, on a football team. So so. Uh, the NFL has a history of being a, 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 a very racist uh, organization. But, you know, Brother Africa, in reference to uh, Brother Moses, the, the, the problem is that there is a rule that exists currently in terms of, you know, um, elevating more African coaches and Africans to the front office. It's called the Rooney, Rooney, the Rooney, Rooney Rule. And yeah, uh, after, the former, uh, head, after the former head of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, so it is in place. So the rules are in place in terms of elevating more African coaches and uh, at least giving them uh, interviews uh, in, in, that exist in the NFL. But the problem is that it does nothing in terms of alleviating the intrinsic racism that exists in the NFL. And so, you know, so so what's been happening is those 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 owners have simply been sidestepping the Rooney rule. They, in other words, you know, you may have that rule in place, but we don't have to honor it. And they've been very, very, they've been very, very clear on the terms of their, their, their disdain, you know, for the Rooney Rule. And so you know, clearly, without the, the players actually organizing and working against that and put some pressure on and on on the ownership, it's nothing's going to change. And that's, and that's just the cold reality. So I don't think any rule is going to do it. I think it's going to take mass action uh, among the players in terms of taking a stand and saying, "Listen, this is absurd." You know what I mean? I mean, you got all of these great players who go on, who do great things in terms of the coaching ranks, but they don't have the opportunity simply because they're not the right skin color. So, so it seems to me that uh, without 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 the, the 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 players, you know, getting involved, organizing, nothing's going to change because anything they do is going to be superficial. Nothing they do is going to be of substance. So, that is a problem. Yeah, you know, I see how much of this behavior outright that that. How much of this outright this uh, behavior can be maybe um, tied to the present attitude of the current administration? 
uh, giving people carte blanche to do and say they please. Because uh, we can look at the recent decisions that they have made to hire coaches. Clearly, there was no criteria, there was no consideration at all to really deal with um, African coaches. Uh, for example, um, they had one coach, you know, coming from college rank, and never won anything from college. Now he coached all on the professional level. You know, he's got a head coaching job. Um, he head of um, Arizona uh, Cardinals, you know. Yeah, another coach who just came in, they're going to be coaching the North Carolina, um, Carolina Panthers. This coach, he, uh, I think he was on like a specialist. He was a specialist coach and maybe even coach maybe some receivers. But he really may have no real major coaching jobs that you normally come to the ranks where people consider. But on top of that, he has received a contract of seven years, guaranteed $60 million just to coach. Whereas most of the ball players don't make that kind of money. What do you, what, what do y'all make of, 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 of that reality, of how they are just outright um, choosing coaches who, you know, really has you know no criteria at all in terms of the rule of the game of saying, look, these are the things you must have in order for us to consider you. I mean, we discussed it earlier, but I just think it's a blanket racist indictment. They don't give a darn at this point in time which has been incurred, encouraged by the present administration. As far as it is being encouraged by the current administration, but I think it predates that. Uh, I think part of the problem is the fact that uh, that in order uh, in order to get a head coaching position in the NFL, it seems you have to have the right political connections. In other words, it's not about qualifications. It's about the political connections that you have. Just like any other corporate position, upper managerial or executive position, it's about, uh, it's about who you know and who you're connected with. And uh, that's a very, uh, it, you know, it's a lousy criteria in which to give a job to someone. But... That's the way that that's the way corporations tend to work, and I think it's gotten more blatant under this administration because uh, uh, because this you uh, because uh, you know the the uh, the the, uh, the the current uh, chief executive you know is, is a businessman basically, and he got it and he and. Uh, he he made his uh, money off the coattails of his uh, of his grandfather and father, and in the real estate market. So uh, you know, so there's a tone being set, as you indicated, but uh, but but it pre it, but it, it it goes beyond Trump, though. Yeah, it's a it's a fraternity. Uh, these capitalists stick together. One of the things the 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 owners of the NFL understand that they're not going to be um, exposed in terms of the kind of things that they're doing. They know that the media's not going to deal with that issue. Uh, of course, it was good that Stephen A. Smith spoke out in terms of the kind of um, abuse of the process when it comes to hiring potentially hiring African uh, you know coaches in or in the front office. It's good that he did that. I'm I'm happy to see that Stephen Smith did that. I mean, you know, he's a proud capitalist, as he says. So I'm glad to see that at least he had enough principle to to outwardly state that what they're doing is not only discriminatory but is wrong. That's good. 
But as far as terms of uh, the Orange Menace impact in terms of decisions they make in the NFL, I agree with Anthony. I think that this this, this kind of propensity preceded, you know, uh, the arrival of the Orange Menace into the White House. I think they've been doing it for a long, long time. Earlier, brother, after you talked about the fact that you talked about, you know, the, the reluctance to have black, you know, African quarterbacks. And that was long um, rumored, a long held belief that, in fact, the Africans are not capable of, 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 of organizing and running things on the field. And that's and that's been a long, hard struggle in terms of, you know, getting African quarterbacks, you know, into the NFL. But it was collective struggle in terms of, you know, uh, you know, African unions among the NFL, you know, particularly, you know, um, the, the African leadership, raising the question in terms of why it's important in terms of, you know, having African quarterbacks, you know, uh, on the field. So again, it's going to it's going to take you know it's going to take some real struggle in terms of bringing this about, you know, because the bottom line is that no matter how how we we we, we cut it, or no, no longer how we look view it, the bottom line is that which essentially what you're talking about institutionalized racism, and so therefore, you know, is there an incentive for them to change? Hell no. They've been they've been doing this for a long long time. This country was built upon institutional racism. So why the hell would they change now? So given that reality, you know, without some kind of pressure, nothing's going to change. So, it, again, the, the, the onus is on the players in terms of trying to bring about some redress in terms of the situation of discrimination against African people, you know, for the better, you know, more uh, uh, better paying, more status-orientated uh, kinds of jobs. Okay, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we have a caller. I think they're waiting. They'd like to maybe share their views and perspectives. We're going to take this caller and let them make that comment. This caller, caller. The last four numbers are eight four one nine, eight four one nine. Welcome to Africa on the move. Your question or comment? Yes, caller eight four one nine. Yes, my comment is basically two two things. One um, is there's a book called um, The Forty Million Dollar Slave, written by. Uh, William Roden, a sports writer, uh, he wrote this book about 10 or 15 years ago. I would suggest that if, to really understand that is that, you know, the sports world is a plantation, okay? And so that's just the basic premise of what I hear you guys talking about is that is what's coming out of the book, out of that particular book. But it also ties into something that uh, Neil Fuller has always talked about as well, and that is that, uh, you know, one of the non-activities of life is entertainment and the need for entertainment, and Africans have always been pretty much entertaining the Europeans, and as time has gone on, where it was for free, now they pay big money, but they're also using that from a political stand standpoint and as an economic, so you have to look at these things. Uh, as to for what they really are. You're know, talking about the plantation. Africans on the plantation are being paid well to entertain. However, if, if, you under, if we understand what happens, you know, that entertainment value, uh, uh, or, or the money that men, especially in football, uh, these brothers are not uh, getting to live life well, okay? But because if you understand that where in America can a young African male, 21, 22 years of age, 
basically no college education because most of them come out before they graduate, get to make the minimum of $450,000. Even someone who works, who uh, young young men that get on the practice squad, uh, if I understand, are making a minimum of $8,000 a week. So they're making about $148,000 a year, which is not a lot of money for, for what they have to uh, uh, pay in terms of the cost of their body, the pain, uh, and then depending upon where they are in the country, the, the cost of living. So it's a plantation. We're talking about a plantation mentality. Uh, it's conditioning. And so, but because it's, it's perceived to be big money, uh, that I that I can make it. There's only a handful of real players making multi-million dollars. Most of them make a couple hundred thousand dollars for a few years, okay? Because we, we hear about the contracts that some of these uh, players are making. If you understand the the wording, they'll say worth, okay? So that is that if everything maybe they get to the Super Bowl, they 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 uh, get a ranking of the top five in their position, so forth and so on. But they have a base salary, okay. But if but if they don't have any real understanding of financial uh, and managing money, uh, the, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said many years ago, they know who to get the money to because they're gonna get it right back. So. You know, it's a larger context, okay, but it's a plantation. These brothers are working on a plantation, and because they are not aware of that, uh, I always recommend to people to read that book, The $40 Million Slave. So that's my comment. And it's interesting because you say that because I was going to come right down the line. Uh, not only just look at the, the whole sports institution inside this country, is another aspect of a form of, of plantation system. And when we talk about even this question of players being responsible, as we talk about this thing playing and controlling by force, the question becomes, you know, um, how many individuals who are making the money that they're making will be willing to jeopardize, you know, speaking up for truth? And I think that's, you know, that's what the problem lies at is, you know, we have sold out and been committed to the dollar bill, and that's what the capitalists know. So your points are well taken. Panelists, anybody like to respond to what the brother just stated? I'd yeah, like well, to add. Go, go ahead, Jabari. I'd like to add to the comments and even respond to the question you posed, Brother Africa, in terms of the presidential administration. One thing that we have to understand is that the NFL became a champion of promoting Americana since 9-11 because it was after 9-11 that the military in the U.S. worked out the contract where basically U.S. would have policies like mandating that players come out for the national anthem. Previously, that was not a policy. That's one thing people have to understand. And because of them taking a stance like that, you got to understand that in terms of this presentation, that the corporatized football league wants to present, they're not going to do anything that would um, cause a people with corporate America that they have a cozy relationship with in terms of certain incentives and things that are in place in terms of how they operate. And that's why one thing, because someone mentioned earlier about collective bargaining, the one thing you got to understand is that, unfortunately, the person that represents the players in terms of their attorney for collective bargaining, he is not doing the best job of working in their interest. So, 
that's why we see the condition that they're playing under in terms of the contract or other things that are in place. If, if I could, if I could just respond to, to, to that real quickly, that if, if if you look at it, and like I said, in its totality, they have a collective bargaining, and they have a brother, an African, who's head of the NFL Player Association. Okay, uh, and as I've said many a times, the education system that most that that the European give us within these uh, educational institutions uh, is designed to keep us to educate us to uh, the Eurocentric mindset. So we will to operate within that, and that's what most of these brothers are operating on. Okay, uh, they don't have a different perspective because they have never seen a, or been introduced to a different perspective. So you put at this moment in time in history of our existence in this country, it is as a result of us not changing our mindset. Those of us that have a different mindset of an African perspective is because most of us have taken the time to re-educate ourselves as to what is the reality that we live in. And this is where, again, people like the nearly fools of the world who say until we truly understand what racism is and how it works, everything else just confuses us. So in this particular topic, you know, the the power structure uh, um, that that is in place is designed, and, and the brothers and Africans who support it and through their participation, but yet some of them will uh, get a smaller shot. But the idea is not to open the door because we, no one looks at it as a plantation because they are getting paid. And so, but it's still the plantation system. And, and therefore, it, it becomes very difficult to start getting some of these players to really speak out on some of these issues. Some of them attempt to. Some of them, I think, have a level of consciousness. But again, they they have to weigh weigh that against the possibility of being able to make that money where they have that opportunity because, as they said, the other uh, meaning for NFL is not for long. The average career is less than five years. But, you know, but, you, but the whole thing, brother, is that, you know, you, you got to keep in mind, you know, we, you know, we're talking about jeopardizing, you know, a large payday, and I certainly understand that. You know what I mean? I mean, particularly when you talk about the young people coming, you know, from these impoverished backgrounds to get the opportunity to make on a minimum $400,000 a year, that's a lot of money for anybody. So I understand that. But but, but it seems to me in terms of strategy, uh, you, know, you know, one of the things why strategy is so important, because you can convey your sentiment in terms of what you'd like to see without necessarily exposing your hand. And so when you talk about the National Football League Player Association, you know, that is their job. And so with players working behind the scenes in terms of raising their grievances in terms of what their expectations are, they can achieve what they want without necessarily jeopardizing their paycheck. So I think that, uh, you know, we, we, we have to understand that strategy plays a big part in terms of achieving what we need to achieve. But I think, again, that the, the point that you made was apropos, and that is that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, your brothers are raised to think in a terms of Eurocentric way, 
and they, they think that they're conditioned to believe that the only way to think is to think the way the system conditioned them to think. And so, therefore, they don't understand there are many avenues in terms of achieving, achieving things. I think it's also important to begin to understand that, you know, you, you have to understand you're at war. Now, strategy is important when you talk about war because war can be fought many, many ways. And so, therefore, NFL players have to recognize that because we're at war, strategically how you fight the, 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 the management or the owners in terms of, you know, getting – you know, uh, uh, you know, getting a, a better system uh, depends on how well you play the game, and that game is going to consist of strategy. So I think that we can't un- we can't disclose. I mean, can't dismiss this old question in terms of strategy, and it's important in terms of getting what you want in terms of you know NFL players. So I think that that sort of sort of sort of undermines the argument. You know that uh, they're afraid that they're going to lose. You know, a big payday. You know, if they speak out. Well, I don't disagree. However, I, 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 you know, there's been a number, there's been a number of uh, examples on either way. All I'm simply saying is that uh, the to, to address the part of the discussion that I came in on is that the NFL is a plantation, and these brothers are on a plantation. And until they want, until they decide to get off the plantation, or they rebel to take control of the plantation, and if they want to take control, yes, they're gonna to have to come up with better strategies uh, than that's being utilized to take control. But otherwise, they are continue because you, you have a long list of players of people just waiting for the opportunity to play. Okay, and. And sort of think the hell with everything else because they do not have that level of consciousness to understand that we're at war, and that uh, you know that the value uh, of that money in the long term it really has no value at all when it comes to the reality of how to live. I mean, and truly live free as a free person. So thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to All right, Carl, make thank you comments. for your comments to today's program. Let's do this. Let's make a transition to another aspect as we, you know, again, to talk about what's going on in our world and the community. Panelists, I would like for y'all to respond to this phenomenon. There's an article that was um, published on January 11, 2020, titled World Super Rich Are Hoarding physical gold in secret bunkers. And the essence of the article is that I'm talking about that people with money now they are actually buying the physical physical aspect of gold, physical gold. And they are putting these gold bars in their bunker and hiding them from, from the government, etc. But the point is they are buying this particular gold, physical bar of gold. What do y'all make of this 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 attitude by the rich and the wealthy, who now are saying the best thing to deal with insecurities and possibilities of shortages, etc., is they are actually buying the physical aspect of gold, not no paper stuff to say you got gold, but the physical bonds of gold. Brother Hackey, give me your, your analysis on the significance of this particular decision making by the wealthy and the rich. In a nutshell, Brother Africa, uh, capitalism's in decline, and the, the super wealthy—they understand that. 
uh, in fact, uh, one of the things you know when we when we when we talk about the the, the capitalism decline, you know we, we have to understand the role in terms of the the, the value of, of currency. And one of the things historically in, in the United States, the thing that makes the United States a superpower is the fact that is it, 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 it literally the world subsidizes the dollar. In other words, in order for the, the world to do business, it uses the dollar. Now, what's happening is that countries around the world, specifically countries like uh, Russia, China, uh, Iran, Cuba, uh, and Venezuela as well, begin to understand that if they're going to be free, if the world is to engage in lucrative trade, then this dollar has to be this dollar has to be uh, eliminated. And so, therefore, they're devising all kinds of unique ways in terms of getting around the dollar. Now, the rich understands that the, 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 the value of the dollar is the thing that makes the dollar worth something. And so if you don't have that value, then the dollar is worth nothing. And so, therefore, for the wealth, the question becomes, what can I do in terms of making sure I have some wealth going into the future? Well, one of the ways in which you ensure your wealth going into the future is the, the purchase of, of gold. Uh, because, you know, gold gold has value, and people can always trade gold. I mean, historically, when you look at the, the evolution of the economy, uh, gold has always played a pivotal part in terms of trade, starting in Africa to 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 to, to China, uh, to Europe. Uh, gold has always played a pivotal part in terms of you know facilitating trade, and so therefore the wealthy understand that, and that's why they're hoarding, hoarding all the gold. In addition to that, you also got countries around the world also buying lots and lots of gold because they understand that uh, capitalism days on this planet are numbered, and so in fact what they have to do is literally start from scratch in terms of economy. Because if the currencies are not functioning, then what happens is that you have to have some means in terms of facilitating trade. Gold creates that possibility in terms of um, making it possible to have trade. Uh, I think also we got to understand, Brother Africa, one thing is that when we talk about the, the functioning of, of currency, one of the things that's very, very interesting when we talk about just how um, unstable um, you know, uh, the currency is. Uh, recently, you know, um, the the Federal Reserve has been pumping sixty billion dollars a month, you know, into the economy. Uh, just last week, they they pumped in. They they the Federal Reserve created seventy nine billion dollars uh, in term in terms of currency into into the economies for the sole purpose of making it possible for Saudi Arabia, you know, to to make a a, a, a stake on its claims because they they decided to sell some some of their securities. Of some of their treasuries because they needed money in terms of financing their war in Yemen. And it created a real hardship for America. And so the capitalists understand that given this reality in terms of the insecurity of the dollar, that the longevity dollar is, 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 is in real problems. And so for what they'll be actually doing is that for them, in order for them to maintain control, they have to literally have to destroy the currency themselves. I know people saying, wait a minute, what, what is that? That doesn't make sense. Why would they destroy the currency? Well, in order for them to maintain their hegemony, their hegemony, in order for them to maintain control, they have to control the currency. You can't do it with the dollar anymore. The dollar is the only way out. So the only way conceivable to do it is to wreck the world's economies in terms of wars, you know, stock up on gold and attempt to, so, to use that gold as, as, a, as a bargaining tool in terms of getting other countries, you know, to go along with you simply because you have more gold. So it's been this real uh, competition between, you know, Russia China and the U.S. in terms of accumulating gold, because they all understand that, in fact, you know, um, the, the the capitalist economy is in decline; it's on its way out. And so, this is what people have to understand. Have to understand. So, when we talk about the accumulation of this paper money as some kind of this, this fiat currency, and we talk about the value of it, we get to understand that the value only exists to the extent that we give it value. In other words, 
we think it has some value. And in fact, reality is it's just paper. That's all it is. And so the real ruling class understands that. And so therefore, they're in for, for a fight for their life because they want to maintain Germany, maintain control at all costs. But they simply can't do it in terms of, in terms of the dollar. So gold is the only way in terms, conceivably in terms of maintaining control, you know, by accumulating lots and lots of gold, leading the world in terms of new economic systems that, that evolve as a result of the decline of capitalism. So clearly, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's what this, this is gold buying is all about. You know, Brother Anthony, this doesn't set to well for countries like the Congo, Ghana, Guinea, Venezuela, countries that have these minerals on their soil. What do you think? What do you think about how this will impact in the future on these countries, politically and economically, Brother Anthony? What can we suspect from this reality? If that is true, that the elite is now putting their emphasis on actually physically acquiring hard, actual gold bars. It's going to intensify the scramble for the world's limited resources. And in addition to dominating fossil fuels, and I'll go back to a point I made earlier about this conflict with Iran. It was discovered recently in Iran, for example, that that, uh, Iran has uh, about $53 billion, billion worth of additional uh, petroleum reserves. That is what's fueling the conflict going on with Iran and the U.S. And also, the, 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 uh, that is a microcosm of what's going to happen in the near future. It's going to intensify. And it's going to be done under the guise of uh, security uh you know uh you know uh uh you know fighting terrorism etc but really it is about the control of uh resources and minerals and africans need to pay very close attention to this because a lot a lot of that mineral wealth is in africa even though it's, uh, even though the europeans have been trying to deplete it uh, for, uh, for nearly a couple of centuries, but a lot of that wealth is still in Africa. So I think I, I think the the implications uh, short term is that uh, is that uh, is that that the suffering that Africans and other oppressed people are undergoing is going to intensify over the next few years, which is why it's so critical that Africans get organized. Brother Jabari, when we look at this whole question of behavior of the elite, and we talk about hoarding um, physical gold, and not only hoarding, but hiding it from governments, what what you make of this attitude? What did you take from this article that you thought of significance that you'd like to share with our listening audience? You know, there's a trend when you look at what the elite does to make sure that their wealth is either not reported or not subject to discussion in terms of how they can engage in means of whether it's uh, um, tax shelter property in certain islands or things of this nature. Because we got to understand, you can just imagine with certain individuals 
who actually do file tax returns in terms of rich people. If you found that they had this kind of value, you can only imagine how much their tax would shoot up. So it's clear they want to have this because they don't want there to be any kind of discussion of the true wealth that they actually have because those that are truly wealthy find means to not make it the source of discussion. They want to keep it concealed because it's an issue that can come with when people realize just how much money you have. And Brother Maurice and Brother Moses, when you saw this article and read this article, what were some of the things that came to your mind that you think would be of significance that you'd like to share with this audience? Starting with Brother Maurice first, then Brother Moses. When, when I read this article, I thought about um, Hillary Clinton's um, response to Muammar Gaddafi, uh, Gaddafi um, having trying to uh, trying to um, translate the the currency in Libya to the gold the dinar uh, D I N A R. See when I, I thought about that. See they 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 labeled him a criminal when he was trying to when he was um, collecting gold. They labeled him a criminal for for doing that for his own country. But 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 now today and and this article we're talking about they are hoarding gold wide open. Um, you know and and, and to echo what uh, Brother Anthony said to connect it back to Africa. We was when I said we Africans, our ancestors was was uh, currency among the gold in Africa. I quote this, and then I conclude. A colonizer stated that if you see an African, best believe you they're going to have gold. If you see they're going to have gold in peacocks. That's what they. That's what a colonizer stated. So I, I conclude with that, man. So you know they they can they can do all of this, have all of the gold, but when Africans on a continent, or like you said in the other places you name on the Caribbean. When we try to be independent, it's they, it's criminal to them. It's, it's a threat to them. They got to come get it. They got to come uh, assassinate or export our countries and land. So I conclude with that. Hey, Brother Africa, let, Brother Africa, let me let me let me just um, give a, a quick warning because uh, my concern is that you know when people listen to us talk about importance in terms of gold going into the future, they they, they think that, well, if I could just purchase some gold, you know, have some kind of some kind of economic security in the future. Let me just let me just point something out. It's important that people understand this specifically, because I realize in the African community you got a lot of people going around with these gold certificates talking about some purchase of these certificates and uh, you know, you, you you purchase a share of gold. I just want to warn people about this this hustle. Essentially people have to understand this. When you talk about, you know, buying gold it, 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 you're talking about essentially you're talking about the contracts. Now these contracts can either be uh, 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 contracts consist of lending gold, contracts consistent of leasing gold, or contracts consistent of borrowing gold. But all of these contracts are, you know, fall in the auspices of of the COMEX. In other words, the institution that's responsible for overseeing the uh, the, the gold prices. Uh, that, that serves as a, a clearance station between you know the uh, the the banks. And investors, in terms of purchasing of gold, they have these contracts specifically to make sure you know that everything's going to up and up. And so, when the gold that you purchase, so the contracts that you purchase are specifically legit in the sense that they state everything you need to know. Specifically, they tell you what the uh, the the density of the gold is, the weight of the gold, even the purity of the gold. All that is in these certificates, and so therefore you know it's legit. But unfortunately, what happens is that these 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 certificates that people are selling in the community are are, are, are fraudulent. They have they're not backed by anything. And so when we talk about the uh, commodity futures trading uh, uh, 
Commission that oversees the supply of gold, the transmission or sale of gold. It has these 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 certificates that people are selling in the community have no relationship whatsoever. They're, they're not overseen by the by the CFTC or the excuse me excuse me Commodity Future and Trading Commission. They're not overseen by anything. They're just a piece of paper. Some some clever uh, con people have thought up, you know, to disseminate to tell people that if you purchase these, you got gold. But they're not backed by anything. So please don't fall in that trap of someone telling you, okay, buy this this piece of paper and you got a you got a share of gold. I want people to understand it's a game that they That's play. Right. If they're going to purchase the gold, make That's damn awesome. sure right. they go to a rec uh, a a a, a um, brokerage house or bank and make sure that whatever contract they sign, make damn sure that it has the density of the gold, the weight of the gold, and the period of the gold. Make damn sure. Make sure make sure it has a, a the selling price. Make sure it has those things because if it doesn't have those things, it's fraudulent. But unfortunately, uh, given the fact that this is a, a criminal system, the selling of that worthless paper is legal. So people can sit and run around and give you that, that fake paper and tell you, oh, buy this and you, you'll purchase gold. It's legal. There is no criminality attached to it. So, But I just want people to be aware that don't, don't allow yourself to be tricked by people in the community selling that crap, telling you that if you if you buy these certificates, then you're purchasing real gold. That's not the case. That's a great point. That's a great point. Let's bring Brother Moses in. Brother Moses, you take on this article? Yeah, this is unfortunately I wasn't able to get back online in time to get this article read. Sorry about that. I'll pass. Thank no you. No Brother Bobby, you see something you want to say just now? Yes, I just want to, I want to uh, uh, commend. That was a great um a great uh breakdown um of the of of the the gold hustle carrot bars for one of them being um I just want to uh c- c- commend um brother Haki on that because you got a lot of people in the in the community is is selling that stuff and you got people saying that this is going to lead to our liberation um by investing in this in in, in this uh this scheme so yeah thank you so much for clarifying that and clearing that up. But not not even. Diluting what Brother Hockey said, but I think also, even when you look at any kind of paper, doing financial um, transactions through paper, most of that stuff out of capitalism is fiat. Because even from this particular article, it seems to me that Golden Stock is selling you get the physical gold itself and don't rely on any form of paper. Um, so I'm just saying that, um, you know, that's, it's, you know, it's similar to. Uh, the paper money that we use, you know, that's just fiat. You know, it has really no real value. And um, and people don't understand that. But anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we're going to discuss part three, planning and controlling by force. We're going to discuss some very interesting articles I think that um, we can learn something from. So what we're going to do is, we're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, our first article will deal with U.S. military bases in Africa. That's right, U.S. military bases in Africa. We'd like to hear your views and perspectives on this. You listen to Africa on the move, and we must understand very clearly that things that are happening are being planned, they are being controlled, and, by, and they are doing it by force. So we're going to pause with the calls. We'll be right back and we come back. We're talking about U.S. bases in Africa. 
you know, when we look at this article, one thing I found really interesting in terms of the theme that they use when they talk about this whole question of militarization and WMD, U.S. NATO war agenda. And it talks about, or let me just read the first two paragraphs, just give our audience a backdrop of where we're going from this point. It states that Africa now contains 1.3 billion inhabitants, almost twice that of Europe population. And the number of African people continue expanding rapidly in what comprises the world's second biggest continent. Following five centuries of privilege of privilege, and exploitation by Western imperial power, Africa is today riddled with poverty and social injustice. Africa remains sought after landmates for the world's strongest states. One of the reasons for this is that two African nations, Libya and the North and Nigeria further south, contain the world's ninth and tenth larger oil reserve. Among the motives behind the March 2011 United States, Leno military assault on Libya was to reinstate control over that country's oil reserve. Now, I would just stop right there, Brother Haki. When we look at this article, one of the things to talk about the role of NATO is really to position themselves geographically to secure and to make sure they maintain access to the kind of materials or and other materials and minerals that they would need in order to continue to be self-sufficient. Now, what does that policy do to a a people who are not in the position to control their own resources? Yeah, well, essentially what it does is devastate the population, and that's precisely what they want. Uh, but I think one of the things we got to keep in mind, Brother Africa, when we talk about the devastation of, of, of the uh, population, to some extent we got to understand that it's important in terms of uh, leadership in those particular countries to participate in that process. Otherwise, it would be very difficult for the U.S. to impose the kind of hardships on these countries that uh, that they currently impose. So one of the things when we talk about these, these terrorist groups, so-called terrorist groups in, 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 in you know throughout throughout Africa, one thing we don't understand is that most of these groups, most of these groups are financed and controlled by the, by the U.S., by the, the military intelligence, CIA in particular. So therefore, in understanding that, you understand that their primary objective is, is, is not only control, but also ultimately the, to subject the people to con- make it possible for them to control the people's resources. So by controlling the people's resources, they ensure that the, 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 the abundance of wealth uh, be accrued to the, to the West. And so that's what it's all about. Now, this wealth that is extracted from Africa it doesn't benefit the masses of, of people in America. It benefits the ruling class. And so we have to understand that. So so one of the things when we talk about this kind of military incursion into Africa, we understand that there's lots of money to be made by the ruling class in terms of the military incursion, both in terms of, you know, selling weaponry, you know, to uh, these so-called terrorist groups and the military as well, in addition to, uh, making it possible for the future gains in terms of you know stealing oil and making making lots and lots of money. So clearly, they, they answer your question, brother Africa. What, what they impose, they, they, the misery and hardship they pose on the people is what West perceives the necessary condition in terms of getting what they want. So it's incumbent upon the African leadership, it's incumbent upon African leaders to understand that while, without a united and strong and consolidated Africa, 
there's no way conceivable but an independent African state can fight back against the West because we're talking about a consolidated West. And this is why we have to have a, a, a collect, a, 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 a consolidated, united African state, united under socialism. This is why it's so important. Without that, uh, Africa become a, 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 a easy pickings for the West. But one of the things about the African, I conclude with this, I think it's important to give people some scope in terms of the, uh, the kind of uh, military involvement in Africa. And we talk about the 36 military bases in, in Africa. So we're talking about over 7,000 U.S. soldiers on the continent of Africa, 500 of which are in Somalia alone, uh, 800 troops in Nigeria. They got over 4,000 troops in Djibouti. Now, interestingly, when we talk about you know uh, the, the subjugation of Africa, the, sub- the Sahel area, area of Africa uh, has been receiving a lot of uh, uh, military U.S. and military incursions. Uh, when we talk about the Sahels, essentially what we're talking about from all the way from Western Africa all the way to the eastern part of Africa. So countries like Senegal, Burkina Faso, Mali, Algeria, northern Nigeria, uh, parts of Cameroon, South Sudan, are all military occupied, you know, by uh, by Western nations. And so clearly, you know, Africa has its work cut out for it in terms of, you know, uh, uh, being in a position to actually resist. But the resistance can only come to the extent that Africans are organized, and if we don't get organized under one government, then the problem is that they are similar pick us off one by one, which has still been the case. So clearly, this this this, this, this military incursions, this, this uh, imperialism that's practiced by the U.S. and other Western states, uh, isn't going anywhere. As a matter of fact, it's intensifying. So we need a strong, consolidated Africa. You know, Brother Jabari, it's very frightening when you look at this article and you talk about this whole um, position of NATO and strategically um, putting military bases all over Africa just to control the resources and shipping lanes, and et cetera. Most Americans, so-called Americans inside the country, have no idea what the U.S. is doing in the name of so-called U.S. policy. What would you say to the listening audience when you read this article in terms of why Africans need to fight against U.S. foreign policy as it relates to the interests of Africa and African people? Well, you got to understand the name of the game is exploitation and profit. As we've stated, Africa is where the natural resources are. It has a booming tourism hub. It is going to be the key for viability going towards the future because that which is synthetic is not going to get the job done. So that means there's going to be another entities that are going to be competing against each other to get access to those areas. And of course, in regards to what the article is saying, one of the key ways of doing it is to have a strong military presence so that you can um, not only overthrow regimes, but you also can co-opt the people through intimidation to give in to Whatever your agenda is We've got to understand That they're going to attack them from every angle possible And that's why It's unfortunate but So many nations even have that AFRICOM command right there present So it's not even just the external force It's also the internal forces that have been put in place So that's what they got to understand It's not going to just be at one angle but all angles Possible they're going to try to get this accomplished we are listening to Africa on the move. Uh, we are talking about U.S. military bases in Africa. If you have any views or comments on that, please feel free to dial in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Hit 1 if you have any views or comments. Um, 
Brother Maurice, you read this article, Brother Maurice, and reading this article, one of the things is clear. It seems that the whole world, they have their eyes on Africa. They have Africa as a very important land base to be able to control and dominate for their own survival. What are some of the lessons that you took from this article that you'd like to share with our listening audience that need be, that they need to understand why Africa must play a central role for African people liberation throughout the world at home and abroad? This, this article brought me to a book, a book that was uh, developed and written 48 years ago by a scholar and, and also Pan-Africanist, Walter Rodney. And I urge everyone who is listening to this program, every African specifically, please get this book so you can understand how these people operate, these capitalists operate. The book is titled How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And he talks about corporations. He talks about capitalism. He talks about Western capitalism dominating Africa and tearing it to shreds. But, however, a specific part in the book, um, on page 197, he talks about the three uh the three roles, the three key roles that um uh European and capitalist military mili- uh militarists played in Africa. That was uh the bodies, African bodies, soldiers who were sacrificed not only in in America, yeah, we we know we know about the Tuskegee Airmen, the Red Tails, and we lost you know, we lost a great deal of um Africans in, in, in here in America, but also on the continent who was on the front line. Who who was uh, in this case metaphorically speaking, who was the female deer deer that was getting killed before the male deer, which is the, the European soldiers come out. They were the first one on the front line to be killed um, during the uh, World War Two. And, and you know we speak about and this is what Rodney speaks about. And he also talks about the basis for uh, for the military and the military conferences. There's a uh, African from Petersburg, an African from Petersburg. He was the first president president. Of Liberia, and they got a a air base named after after him, J.J. Roberts. If he was a man of of of, of integrity and and Africans, I don't, and I I'm not gonna go in detail because I don't know much history about J.J. Roberts, but I think he wouldn't want his name on that on his air base. And and the article speaks about Libya as well. Libya, as like Rodney pointed out, Libya has the biggest. Uh, Air base outside of of the United States of America, and this was also another uh, reason of um, you know taking out Gaddafi. And it's still it's still uh, it's still present today. Africans being killed on the on the front line with Africom. Afri- African servant under Africom is, from America is getting killed. Like we had one one uh, brother, 23 year old African from Chicago, who was killed in, uh, in um, Kenya. And this this is. Um, also, uh, last year, if, if you can recall, an African was killed in Nigeria who Trump didn't want to call his, you know, he didn't want to call his wife to pay his respect or whatever for this African soldier dying on a, dying on the cause and the support of, of imperialist um, exploitation. And, and keep in mind now, people love Barack Obama. People love him now. But as you understand, Obama was used as a tool to, this is when the rate of this this is this is this is when the rate of African drone uh, I'm sorry Africom and and drone bases increased um, under Obama's presidency. We gotta we gotta understand that, and, and, and you know that's what I when I read the the article. This is this is what it what it states. 
This is what it stated. Now, also, and and when you got all all this going on, the Africa, uh, you got all this going on, uh, imperialists using Africa for his military means. As brother brother Anthony pointed out, the oil, the lithium, the, the and don't don't please don't leave out the, the the uranium that was used for um bombs. You know, what I'm saying for for uh, atomic bombs. And it's sad that the the bulk of the uranium can't come out of Africa, and we do not have no ownership of an atomic bomb. It's kind of it's sad and it's and it's, and it's pitiful. And they they go get these uh, minerals from Africa, the minerals, the labor, all of this, the, the land for their bases. And and one thing I will I will point out, as also Brother Anthony stated, organization, um, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, drum in Detroit, they understood. They understood uh, that these, uh, you know, Dodge and also from Ford, um, Ford Revolutionary United Workers, uh, they, uh, the Union Movement. They they understood that they understood that Ford, Dodge, Chrysler, all these auto, auto, all of these um, auto industries was benefiting off of Africa from the rubber. Um, the oil, you know, fight, you know, fights on the ties rather than Liberia. And Liberia, we talked about, I, did, I spoke about Liberia earlier coming from Rodney. Um, but see, and, and they understood that organization. They they went on strike and they went on strike and shut the plant down for, 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 for not to further um, these corporations' um, profit of, on military vehicles, rubber, and also they understood they understood that the exploitation that was going on in Africa. So I think we got to connect our struggles, and we definitely got to organize, man, because this this thing, this wicked beast of imperialism and capitalism, will be destroyed. And like like the brother stated earlier, it's on the verge of being destroyed. That's why they resorting. That's why they 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 creating bunkers for they go they go. They know the dollar is not is losing um, profit. So it, it it is on the verge, man. And that's why Trump. And I say this, and I conclude. That's why Trump is uh, not only Trump. This is, I mean, let's phrase it, the American government is rolling back everything. Recently, down in Buckingham County, you got Dominion trying to put a pipeline um, station down through a black uh, neighborhood, store black neighborhood, Union Hill, and back in Buckingham County. They had a win. They had a, you know, you know, had a minor win because um, the Africans in the community came out and spoke out against this uh, compressor compress station to be built. Now, the court, the judges uh, and the uh U.S. Court of Appeals, they ruled out that it was, you know, unjustified. They didn't, they didn't uh, lay out that this uh, compressor station, this pipeline, would be uh, dangerous to the community and communities around Union Nation, all the way from uh, D.C. down to South Hill, Virginia. You know, with this compressor station, and they had a minor win. Now, the the capitalists understand understand this. They rolling back everything. Now, an article came out of a Richmond Times Dispatch. And they're the Trump administration under Trump. They trying to, they trying to, they trying to um, develop. How can I say this? They trying to, they trying to roll back plans or limit a uh, roll back plans or and um, uh, basically trying to, trying to create a situation where where the community cannot speak up on um. Uh, environment uh, causes like anything that's they, that they trying to trying to build the uh, like pipelines. Trump's administration don't want the community to come out and speak about about it. And I'll read a quote from an article right here. What he said. Um, where is it? Where is it? Uh, I want to be real brief. Um, 
Okay, uh, he said the Trump administration and his allies also are citing economic imperatives and their assault on clean air, clean water regulations. Um, uh, where is it? Where is it? Okay, I, I, I'm not gonna um, be long uh, long with it on that. I can't find a quote, but that's that's basically what's going on. And also on the flip side of the um, the uh, the the pipelines. Okay, here you go. He said, and it would mean that communities will have less control over some projects built in their neighborhoods. So that's what he wants. He don't want no community. They don't want no community or none of the uh, people who live in the community to come out and speak and speak on issues. And not only on, on that, the administration is also rolling back housing, uh, uh, rolling back um, rules for the community to speak up on fighting housing discrimination. The administration said it will reduce regulatory burdens and eliminate the assessment to use to map racial segregation under the 2015 uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. So they want to roll back everything. They they, they want to shut down all all environment. That's why everything's going on social, you know, on, on social work. Uh, I mean, on social media. I'm sorry, everything is on. Uh, you know, everything, you know, but they justifying everything, breaking up communities, getting us to go. On, go on, the, uh, people think the revolution is a hashtag, which is not. Um, so, I, and I conclude, man, because I, I don't spoke spoke enough. I think I made my point, but I would just urge Africans, please go get the book. Walter Rodney, how you have underdeveloped Africa, you will, I, I guarantee you, you will have a better understanding on what's going on today. And, you know, Brother Anthony, um, you know, when you look at this article, it's really interesting where George Kana, the famous American planner and historian, outlined as far back a top secret document dated on the 24th of February 1948 that we we need not deceive ourselves that we can afford the day the history. I mean, afford the luxury of altruism and world benefaction, including unreal objectives such as human rights, the raising of living standards, and democratization. Two years later, in 1950, Keener recognized that. The imperative need was for the protection of our materials. These views remain relevant right up today. In the name of Terry Anthony, Brother Anthony, what are they saying to the everyday person when it comes to this, this so-called narrative of the so-called American dream, American virtues? That uh, that 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 don't the only thing that the, the U.S. ruling class cares about is control of Africa's raw materials. Uh, he uh, he used the term "our" because that because of the U.S.'s military might, they control them for a moment, but they really belong to uh, to, to Africa's people, and uh, and these resources are what. These wars are being fought over, and uh, and uh, and uh, and and most people in the U.S. are being fed a pack of lies about uh, you know uh, freedom and democracy. Uh, it is really about the control of resources, and and it's important that people understand this, and that we start uh, that we stop allocating our labor toward fighting. Uh, you, uh, you know, wars to to pillage our 
resources and uh and really and, and really organized to uh you know to bring about pan Africanism, which is the only solution that will uh you know de- de- defeat our enemy and bring an end to the suffering of the masses of African people worldwide. You know, Brother Haki and Brother Moses, can y'all speak to this quote that Brother Kwame Ture often would say that America doesn't last summertime, it lasts all the time. Look at this article, it talks about, and you know, like I stated earlier, Brother George Keener, um, this European stated that as far back as late 40s that the notion or concepts such as human rights, democratization, standards of living, these are concepts and issues the U.S. cannot take on, cannot afford. It's, it will be against their interests. Can you talk a little bit about that, Brother brother Haki and then Brother Moses? Yeah, essentially what he's saying, <clears throat> ruthlessness rules the day. I think that's something that's sort of um, informative about, about that statement. One of the things we talk about, the injustices that inflict people in the society in America we get to understand that this kind of ruthlessness not only extends to you know people right here in this country, but also people throughout the world, in particular, you know, on the African continent and people of color around the world. And so, therefore, given this, these kind of values, these almost anti-human values, uh, uh, everything is on the table. So, destruction is not an issue as far as he's concerned. In fact, what he's advocating is more destruction. And so you have people like Ayn Rand, you have people like Machiavelli, the philosopher who advocate, you know, uh, total domination of, of, of one human being over another as something that's somehow natural. And so given this backdrop, given this reality in terms of philosophy, people should be very, very concerned in terms of, you know, uh, what's going on, particularly as related to that longevity on this planet. So clearly this guy is very, very ruthless, and that's what he advocates. Brother Moses, your take? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Brother Haki's points are well taken. I think, you know, Brother Maurice's point about reading um, the how Europe underdeveloped Africa about Walter Rodney, uh, um, that's definitely, definitely a, a book to be read uh, to understand the history of the situation. Um, the, Africa is, is one point. Three billion inhabitants, almost twice that of U.S. population, and uh, it's the world's second biggest cont- continent. And I think that's important to understand that that we we there's more of us than there is of them, and we have to understand that power relationship. Ultimately, if we can get organized, we can turn this situation around. I don't want to belabor the point. I know it's getting late. So I'll end it right there. Thank you. Okay, panelists, in our um, final night on this particular subject, U.S. basis in Africa, um, I'd just like for y'all maybe expand a little bit on this whole issue of the error that has been made by allowing U.S. bases in Africa. You know, when you put military bases, when they come and sit up in your camp, you can't tell them to go. The only way they're going to have to leave, you have to force them. Y'all response to the, the long-term implications of allowing U.S. military bases in Africa? Uh, it perpetuates imperialism uh, in Africa. 
unfortunately, and as a consequence of the failure of Africa to unite. Nkrumah advised a long time ago the importance of political unification, without which we could not uh, form the necessary military uh, organization to defend Africa against uh, imperialism and all of its manifestations. And today, as a consequence of the failure to unite, uh, neocolonialism is running rampant all over the African continent. And uh, most of the political leadership is corrupt, selfish, and imbued with uh, capitalist ideas, which is why it is so difficult to uh, to fight against it. But fight against imperialism and all of its manifestations, we must if Africa and African people are to be free worldwide. You know, it gets a little insidious because one of the things that, in terms of military intervention by the West, one of the things specifically when it comes to the U.S., when the military intervene in Africa, they have these leaders to sign authorization use of military force, which protects the U.S. in terms of potentially taking them to criminal court, you know, for uh, for various kind of uh, international crimes. So clearly, these uh, these corrupt African leaders are complicit in terms of allowing these military bases on the continent. Uh, and not recognizing, you know, uh, that uh, what they essentially did is sign their own death warrant. So we got much work to be done in terms of educating, you know, the masses of folks uh, in terms of, you know, um, the very, very, very wrongs committed by their leadership in hopes that uh, the future leadership would rise up and, and, um, and, and fight for a unified and socialist Africa. Okay, brother. Maurice, your response to the implications of allowing military bases in Africa, what you make of it? Oh, sure. In 2018, the United States of America was trying to put a, uh, a air base in um, Ghana, and and the and uh, people, it wasn't it wasn't the president who declined not to have the who who rejected America for bringing a base in, into in, into Ghana. It was the people. It was the it was the masses of people, Africans in Ghana, that said, "Hell no, we don't want no air base in Ghana." So it's gonna take the people to shut this uh, shut this um, imperialism beast down. It's gonna take us getting organized, man, and, 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 and really joining a political educational study group. That's the only way you're gonna. They say that's the, that's the only way we're gonna eliminate, uh, eliminate and destroy capitalism and imperialism. But but people understand like people like for example in Ghana. Like when they say hell no, they put pressure on on the president ass, uh, a a, a kufo. They put pressure on him, on him, and said no. It'd be a spit in the face to to like brother Anthony spoke about um, Kwame Nkrumah, Africa missing. You know, it'd be a big spit uh, spit in his face uh, to allow a base in Ghana. Come on, man. You know, you, you know. So we, it's going to take us, man. It's going to take us. Um, to you're gonna have to take a class struggle of us understanding, man, to to really um, to combat imperialism. You know that's why I stated, I alluded to Colin Kaepernick making that a statement. I'm glad he he came to the under, developed to the understanding that hey, it's imperialism. You know, I understand on um, yeah, because all the you know imperialism emphasize it make it and make it for racism to run rampant. 
on on us, man. It, it make and Pluto doesn't make it for 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 uh, Africans not to be coaches of of, of football of a football team, right? Um, and the, I mean it, uh, the the. I think we lost Brother Maurice. What we're going to do right now, we're going to um, pause for the calls, and when we come back, we're going to ask each one of our panelists and analysts give us their final thoughts. You're listening to Africa on the Move. We're discussing part three, planning and controlling by force. We come on every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. And if you have any views or comments, you know, feel free to write us at Africa on the Move to Gmail. Or y'all, we can call in. So what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this call, then we come back. We're going to have our final thoughts from our panelists and analysts. This is Africa on the Move. What's up? Some That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that have, that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was the democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Got the strip with getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck who's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, Fuck it, I'll do it. A master of the sky, expert at telling lies. Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Should've known he was trained in Chicago. Worker chairman Fred and Mark Clark. What they do in the dark will come out in the light. Like a WikiLeaks site. So I guess the crew was right. Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism. I ain't kidding. In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living.
Obama didn't say shit. What's the bigger threat from Osama or from Obama? Military bases will shake us to Okinawa. I say things that other rappers won't say, cause my mind never closed like Guantanamo Bay. Hope you didn't feel the statue attached to your arm, cause the drones are still playing over fresh to the sun. Did he defend the war? No, he extended more, even had the time to attempt to do in Ecuador, Morales and Chavez. The states are on the hunt for your military now stationed on bases in Colombia. Take a trip to the past and tell him I was right. Ask Ali Abu Nima and Jeremiah Wright. Joe's over Pakistan, Yemen and Libya. Is Obama the bomber getting ready for Syria? First black president, the masses were hungry. But the same president just bombed an African country like... Extremely difficult in terms of combating those forces which seeks to destroy us. 
Uh, the brother uh, Maurice talked about the fact he talked about the importance of reading the book about uh, with the Walter Rodney book, How You Have Undeveloped Africa. Also, we Confessions of Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Uh, this is also very important because when we look at the disparities that happen in the society, we begin to understand why these disparities happen in society. And there is an existential threat uh, to, the, to the existence of African people in society. We have to fundamentally understand that. In understanding that, we have to fundamentally understand that this is a war that we're engaged in. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because that is key in terms of moving forward. And everybody, have a good night. Again, thank you as well, Brother Ake, for your contribution to today's program. Thank our panelists, thank our uh, participants and listen audience for always listening and supporting Africa on the moon. Remember, this is a weekly program that you can listen to and participate every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. And if you have any comments or questions you'd like to raise with us about these programs and others, Please email us at africaornamoon2 at gmail.com. Until next time, we will encourage you to continue to subscribe to Go Forward Arrow and Backwards Novel, showing the organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people, as well as for the liberation of humanity from the various forms of oppression. Remember, without information, you cannot think, and without organization, you cannot think clearly. Join the organization that is fighting to make this a better world. Until next time, we leave you with some music of Sweet Liberation, which will be Mama Africa and Palestine. We thank you again for sharing and listening to Africa on the Moon.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Her freedom, Palestine. Palestine needs. We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s in. It's relationships of the 80s and relevance of the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the 
resolutions passed at the Fifth Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time. 
but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct 
the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having main gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in a society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. 
We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, the students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area the 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. 
This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interest with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. 
Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> yes. Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. 
And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes, yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have change and will have change by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of, course. of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, 
the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here yeah, then the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.